Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 215. We'll begin the scroll of Ecclesiastes with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about the absurdity of human goals. Ecclesiastes is the weirdest scroll of all the scrolls, if not the weirdest text in the whole Tanakh. Let's start with the name. The Septuagint is the 3rd to 2nd century BCE Greek version of the Tanakh. It includes the Apocrypha. It's also the official text of the Tanakh for the early Christian church. Its translators called the scroll Ecclesiastes because it, they believe, was the translation of the scroll's Hebrew name, that is, the one who assembles. Which, to some degree, is correct. The root of Kohelet, Kuf He Lamed, means to assemble. But what is this scroll assembling? Hebrew verbs most often refer to people, not words or things, as its object. So it's likely not an assembly of ideas or sayings. Is the title referring to an assembly of people gathered to take in all the scroll's ideas? If so, and we're talking about me gathering folks to hear my thoughts, gathering is a causative verb. So the scroll should be called makhil. And then there's the suffix et at the end of the name, which implies the feminine case. According to Robert Alter, in late biblical Hebrew, there are two, maybe three instances where the et suffix indicates a vocation. In modern Hebrew, many abstract nouns are derived from another noun or verb by adding an et at the end. For example, money is kesef, and kasefet is a safe, niyar is paper, and nayeret is paperwork. In short, it's not clear what Kohelet means, but we know, or tradition thinks we know, who it refers to. Chapter 1, verse 1, quote, the words of Kohelet, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Is Kohelet Shlomo? Kohelet says he was a king in Jerusalem in verse 12. He pursues wisdom, which was a goal attributed to Shlomo. Chapter 2 talks of Kohelet's many houses and massive wealth. Some have argued that Kohelet being a late addition to the canon was influenced by Greek thought, but the presence of two Persian and not Greek loanwords indicates that perhaps it joined the Tanakh in the late Persian period. This is a safe bet, as once Jews became part of the Hellenistic world, Greek words freely entered the Hebrew language. On the other hand, even during the late Persian period, Jews had commercial and cultural dealings with the Greeks. Perhaps this is how Kohelet was exposed to Greek thought. This argument is bolstered by Kohelet's frequent use of bookkeeping language and jargon. Was he one of those Jewish merchants who crisscrossed the Mediterranean involved in the exchange of goods and ideas? It's really not clear. Kohelet is a conservative in that when he echoes any wisdom literature, he holds fast to tradition. His moral maxims are reminiscent of Proverbs, another book attributed to Shlomo. But when he breaks with tradition, he breaks hard. Life is ephemeral, he tells us. Reality is cyclical. All that we cherish is fleeting. And death awaits us all. 
Hopkins is a bummer, man. That's, uh, that's a bummer. Kohelet's first words are his most famous. Quote, Havel Havalim Amar Kohelet, Havel Havalim Hakol Havel. Merest breath, said Kohelet, merest breath. All is mere breath. This becomes his refrain, and he'll conclude the pre-epilogue with these words as well. Havel or Hevel is a metaphor, but what is the object or action it's trying to represent? The King James Version renders Havel or Hevel and all its recurrences as vanity, and Havel Havalim as vanity of vanities. Vanity here harkens to the Latin meaning of lacking in value, not the kind of vanity that drives Instagram influencers, although that kind of lacks value too. Hey guys, I'm in New York City just hanging out. However, the Hebrew also provides rich fodder for metaphorizing, if that's a word. Havel refers to the vapor that you exhale when you breathe, which most of the year is invisible except in the winter, but in either instance, it dissipates almost immediately into the air. So in addition to valuelessness or futility, Havel could also represent insubstantiality, ephemerality, and elusiveness. Kohelet only uses God's name Elohim, which is not the Yahweh that brings down wrath on humans for falling short of their moral obligations. Elohim, he observes, might bring humanity to judgment, but it's not clear how or when. This doesn't strike the right tone in a text that, for the most part, is all about God's fairness and how the wicked will eventually get their just desserts. And yet, Ecclesiastes is part of this text. Ecclesiastes is in the Tanakh. Perhaps it's the epilogue that allowed it to slip into the canon. Perhaps what's included or excluded from the canon may not have been based solely on the grounds of ideological or theological conformity. And I'm looking at you, Book of Job and the Scrolls of Song of Songs and Esther. So let's begin. As I said earlier, chapter one begins with the maxim that pervades and concludes the scroll, quote, merest breath, said Kohelet, merest breath, all is mere breath, which, if true, begs the question, so then what's the point? Kohelet will ponder this for the remainder of the scroll. The world seems to teem with activity and action, but it's all mere repetition. The sun and the sky that rose this morning rose yesterday too. And the sunset that will conclude this day will conclude tomorrow as well. The cyclical nature that drives nature also defines human life as well. We just have bad memories about what happened in the past. We think that what we're experiencing is new, but it's not. Quote, that which was is that which will be, and that which was done is that which will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Even the iPhone, I guess. Kohelet sets out to figure out what the point of all this is. He will pursue wisdom in this chapter and joy from life's pleasures in the next chapter. Wisdom will help us understand, but quote, for in much wisdom is much worry, and he who adds wisdom adds pain. Chapter 2 continues Kohelet's search, quote, I said in my heart, come now, let me pour out wine and merriment and enjoy good things. But he quickly concludes, quote, and look, this too is mere breath. Come on! Kohelet sits at the top of the class pyramid, quote, I made me great works. I built myself houses. I planted for myself vineyards. I made for myself gardens and orchards and planted in them every kind of fruit tree. I made for myself pools of water from which to water a wood growing trees. 
I bought male slaves and slave girls, and had home-born slaves too. Also many herds of cattle and sheep did I have, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself both silver and gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got myself men and women singers, and the pleasures of humankind, and many a concubine. And I grew great, and added more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I'm really rich. I'll show you that in a second. And yet it won't amount to anything. Why? Quote, I turned to see wisdom and revelry and folly. For what is the man who comes after the king, that which he has already done? And I saw that wisdom surpasses folly as light surpasses darkness. The wise man has eyes on his head and the fool goes in darkness. Yet I too knew that a single fate befalls them all. So it doesn't matter how much money you have or wisdom you've acquired. All end up in the same place. And all the work and effort handed down to errors will also yield nothing. Quote, And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, and he will have power over all that was got from my toil, for which I toiled and grew wise under the sun. This, too, is mere breath. Come on! So perhaps the answer is to live in the now. Quote, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and sate himself with good things through his toil. This too I have seen, for it is from God's hand. Meaning, extreme hedonism won't contribute to anything long-lasting or positive, but since our lives are so short and fleeting, maybe it's all we have and we should just indulge. But even that is sus, because God Elohim gives and takes away and really doesn't explain why. This, too, Kohelet states, quote, mere breath and hurting the wind. Come on! Chapter 3 provided inspiration for Pete Seeger's 1959 song, Turn, 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 and The Birds cover in 1965, which became an anthem for peace and tolerance, which again is weird in light of the larger context here in Ecclesiastes. This is the first instance of formal poetry in the scroll and highlights the contradictory aspects of human life, both good and bad, which are all beyond humanity's control. At one moment, they'll be called upon to laugh, at another to weep, but they can scarcely hope to derive any gain from this alternating pattern not determined by them. Quote, I have seen the business that God has given to the sons of man with which to busy themselves. Everything he has done aptly in its time, eternity too, he has put in their heart without man's grasping at all what it is God has done from beginning to end. Kohelet then observes the place of judgment to see whether wickedness is curbed or prevails, and he determines that not only is there no real difference between the righteous and the wicked, there isn't difference between humanity and animals. Quote, everything goes to a single place. Everything was from the dust, and everything goes back to the dust. Who knows whether man's spirit goes upward and the beast's spirit goes down to the earth. Kohelet is trolling, but his concluding thought in chapter 3 is a bit of a hand grenade. Quote, everything goes to a single place, everything was from the dust, and everything goes back to the dust. Who knows whether man's spirit goes upward and the beast's spirit goes down to the earth. One wonders how this conclusion, that there's virtually no difference between the spirit of a human and the spirit of an animal, might play out in the days and months and years before death. 
Could Kohelet have been the precursor to Peter Singer on this matter? Who's Peter Singer? Well, Peter Singer is a moral philosopher and a very polarizing thinker. He has this way of asking questions and assembling answers that, while very straightforward, are also very layered and nuanced. His 1975 book, Animal Liberation, puts forth a simple proposition. All living beings capable of suffering are worthy of equal consideration, and giving lesser consideration to beings based on their species is a form of discrimination. Let that sink in for a minute. Michael Pollan's blurb for this book was equally powerful. Quote, Animal Liberation is one of those rare books that demand that you either defend the way you live or change it. Some, in capturing Singer's argument, have said that an animal's right to life should be based on its capacity to feel pain more than their intelligence, which sounds reasonable, but that's not the argument that Singer is making. He's not making a rights argument. Singer actually rejects rights as a moral concept. Singer is a utilitarian, which, as any fan of The Good Place will tell you, looks at any given situation and asks the following question. What can we do about this that will produce the best outcomes or fewest consequences for the most people? So as a matter of course, Singer is opposed to factory farming and embraces veganism because opposing the former and embracing the latter reduces animal suffering. Utilitarians, Singer among them, might take it a step further and support violating a right holder's right if it will demonstrably produce more desirable consequences than respecting that right. So, one might say, government officers could enter the home of a radicalized white supremacist and seize their assault weapons. Yes, this violates their right to privacy and private property, but considering the preponderance of mass shooters being radicalized white males, the high probability that this individual might commit indiscriminate violence against black and brown people is high enough that it would justify confiscation of their property. Now, I'm sure you're thinking no crime has been committed. On what grounds? does the government have to take someone's private property? Well, the utilitarian might say, look at the statistics, look at history. This guy is primed and ready for violence based on his public posts and declarations about racialized people. And we know from our gun registry that he has multiple assault weapons and probably countless dozens of cases of ammunition. Why he needs that many guns and that many bullets is his business, but the potential that this person has to harm innocent people far outweighs the right of one individual to property. Doesn't it? Talk amongst yourselves, I'll give you a topic. Singer, in another more straightforward example, would say that most animal experimentation should be prohibited and only because he argues, and his argument is based on data, not anecdotes or gut instinct, that most animal experiments produce benefits that are insufficient to justify animal suffering. But he doesn't categorically oppose all animal experimentation because there might be an instance where the use of a particular animal could lead directly to a cure for a crippling disease that affects many humans. Singer takes it even a step further. 
based on his book's proposition. He has argued that under some circumstances, it would be permissible to use non-consenting humans in experiments if the benefits for all affected outweigh the detriment to the humans used in the experiment. And I'm sure you're thinking that's straight up Nazi stuff. That's like Nazi medicine that conducted all kinds of crazy tests on humans without their consent. But what if it meant a cure for cancer or Alzheimer's or MS? What if it meant curing a disease that afflicts hundreds of thousands of people, including a close family member or spouse? Remember, he argues that all living beings capable of suffering are worthy of equal consideration, but he's not an absolutist. Singer's notion of equal consideration does not mean that animals receive equal treatment. It also doesn't preclude exploiting a non-human or even a human. As long as an animal's interests receive consideration untainted by the human reflex to discount animal interests simply because they're perceived as inferior, Singer's equality principle could be satisfied. The question is, what are the human goals we're trying to achieve here? If they're important enough, yielding the most desirable consequences for the most people, then as we said, Singer would say we should use animals and even humans to achieve them. But what would Kohelet say about this? Well, Kohelet would probably frown on utilitarianism as it goes against the grain of the Tanakh's thinking or theology about right and wrong, but idolatry being bad and the wicked eventually getting their just desserts in the end. According to the Tanakh, right is defined by divine diktat, not by maximum benefit to the most people. Idolatry, even if practiced privately and it harms no one, is still worthy of eradication. And as for the wicked being punished, well, (laughs) yeah. Then again, Kohelet is also a bit of a nihilist with his everything-is-mere-breath attitude. I'm sure he wouldn't buy into the possibility that any human goal would be worth striving for at the expense of another's suffering. Why bother? But there is this other streak in Kohelet where he looks at all human endeavors as absurd. You know, he's done it all. He built palaces, he amassed fortunes, he launched himself into space, and after he'd been there and did that, he concluded, quote, I turned about in all my deeds that my hands had done, and in the toil that I had toiled to do, and look, all was mere breath and hurting the wind, and there was no gain under the sun. And yet, though there is no gain under the sun for the wise, for example, because in the end the wise end up in the same place as the foolish, Kohelet prefers wisdom. It's absurd to prefer that, and yet he does it nonetheless. Just as it's absurd in the face of the grinding gears of capitalism, which value human life and the lives of animals and expensive machinery almost the same, to say living things shouldn't suffer if possible. We should strive for that. That's a human endeavor we should all get behind, if we can, as much as possible, because why not? If there's no clear outcome, just mere breath, then wouldn't it be better to try for something better, as would most utilitarians? Kohelet said, quote, I saw that wisdom surpasses folly as light surpasses darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head and the fool goes in darkness, yet I too knew that a single fate befalls them all. And yet, Kohelet is still wise. And so... Maybe we should still try. 
today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Tell a friend about Tanakhcast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Tanakhcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast at patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 216, when we continue in the scroll of Ecclesiastes with chapters 4 through 7.